Well, we're in our second study of John. If you uh, missed last week, it was kind of an overview of the book. This morning, we're going to tackle one through five, and uh, I won't promise, but I'm going to try and do six through 13 next week. And so you can be reading ahead. I should have mentioned last week, if you've never done so, sit down and read through John in the shortest time you can. Take you a couple hours, maybe, at most, to read through the whole thing. Uh, Do it in two or three parts if you don't have that much time. But uh, just read through it and read through it again and ask God to show you in it who Jesus is and what the point of the book is. And I think you'll be blessed by our studies. encourage you, too, to help your kids to memorize Scripture because uh, I memorized John 1, 1 to 12 when I was little in second or third grade. And, of course, I've been reviewing it now, but even before that, I could just rattle it off to you because I learned it when I was young, and it just sticks in your brain. And so it's harder when you get older to memorize Scripture But uh, help your kids to memorize God's word, and it will come back with fruit. John writes this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some of you have seen the movie uh, Ben-Hur years ago, and uh, it's been a long time since I watched it, but in that movie... Ben-Hur had been imprisoned by the Romans, and he was being taken to a galley ship where they were going to force him to row. He was tired and thirsty and so exhausted that he fell to the ground and couldn't get up, and he cried out in his desperation, God, help me. And at that moment, Jesus, and the movie very tastefully, I think, never showed the face of Jesus. It always showed him from the back, but you knew that's Jesus. And at that moment, when he says, God help me, Jesus comes up and reaches down to give him a drink of water. The Roman centurion sees it happening. He yells out to Jesus to uh, get away and leave the man alone, and he raises his whip, and Jesus turns and looks at that soldier, and again, it's from the back, you can't see Jesus' face, but the soldier looks up, and he just stands there, immobilized in awe, as he looks at the face of Jesus, and then he lowers his whip, and turns and walks away. And I think that the movie was trying to convey the effect that an encounter with Jesus Christ Uh, would stun and perhaps even soften the hardest of men. An encounter with Christ was a stunning 
event. Now, John begins his gospel by stunning us with this description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never mentions Jesus' name till we get down to verse 17. But it's pretty obvious early on who he's talking about. And rather than beginning with the story of Jesus' birth or his genealogy, as, as Matthew and, and Luke do, or Jesus' ministry, as, as Mark does, John confronts us with the deity of Jesus Christ in eternity. Uh, you remember that Moses begins Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the Bible, confronting us with the majesty of God when he says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, John, very similarly, John 1-1, confronts us with the majesty of Jesus Christ when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John wants us, I think, to stand in awe of Jesus as God, as the one who reveals the unseen God to us, just as my words reveal my thoughts to you. You can't see my thoughts. You don't know what I'm thinking. But when I speak, you know. And Jesus, God has spoken in Jesus his word. Now, it's foundational to the Christian faith and it's foundational to your personal faith that you understand and embrace that Jesus Christ is fully God. Bishop Moole, years ago, once stated, a Savior, not quite God, is a bridge broken at the farther end. Um, John Mitchell put it this way. He said, if Jesus is not God then we are sinners without a Savior. If Jesus were only a man, then he died for his own sins. And we are still in our sins. We have no hope. And so in order to reconcile sinners to a holy God, Jesus had to be eternal God who took on human flesh to bridge that gap. And John skillfully presents Jesus as God in human flesh, in the prologue to John. Now, the prologue is the first 18 verses, and uh, we're not going to cover all of it, but it's important to understand a little bit about it. Uh, Colin Cruz, in his um, commentary, points out, he says, the prologue introduces the main themes that are to appear throughout the gospel. Jesus' preexistence, and in each of these cases, he lists verses I'm not going to mention specifically, but they're in the notes there. Uh, Jesus' preexistence, Jesus' union with God, the coming of life in Jesus, the coming of light in Jesus, conflict between light and darkness, believing in Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, divine regeneration, the glory of Jesus. Uh, the grace and truth of God in Jesus, Jesus and Moses and the law, uh, only Jesus has seen God, and Jesus' revelation of the Father. And so all of these themes are in nugget form in the prologue, and they will be unfolded in the remainder of the book. And Cruz compares it to a, a foyer of a motion picture theater where you walk in and they have on the uh, pictures there in the 
entryway scenes from the film that you're going to see as you go on into the theater. And the prologue is kind of like that, a preview of attractions to come or of the one you're going to be seeing anyway. And uh, also Cruz and others, and I was going to go into this in detail, and frankly, I just don't have time, but the, the prologue has a chiastic structure to it. A chiasm has the first and last parts similar, and then the next uh, second and second to last are similar, and so on. And it works down to the hinge of the whole thing. And in this case, the hinge of the prologue is verses 12 and 13, um, in which John brings out the central theme, and that is namely that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are born of God, we become children of God, and as you know, that relates to his purpose statement that we looked at last week. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. And so, very skillfully written prologue here. Now, Today, as I say, we need to limit ourselves to the first five verses, and uh, I was congratulating myself I could get through that much because these verses are just packed, but we'll try to cover the first five verses where John is showing that Jesus Christ is the eternal Word. He is the creator of everything, and he reveals the life and the light of God to this dark world. Um, it is impossible for us to know God because Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man, Paul says, has seen or can see. The only way we can see God is if he chooses to reveal himself to us. And John's point is God has done that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's how we know God. His first point is that Jesus is the eternal word of God, and that's in verses 1 and 2. Let me read it again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, we need to be clear what John is affirming here, because, again, this is foundational stuff for the Christian faith. And there are four things. The first point is simply Jesus is eternal. Of course, which means he's God, but we'll get to that in a moment. But there is no eternal being except God. In the beginning, as I said, takes us back to the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the verb was indicates that At the beginning of the universe, when creation took place, Jesus was already existing. It's like he says later in John 8, 58, Before Abraham was born, I was, or I am. I am existing, even well before 2000 B.C. Well, here he's saying, when creation happened, the word already was in existence. Um, And John wants us to see here, he's writing to us about a new creation. In the fall, man lost what God had given him. In Christ, man can recover uh, what was lost there because of Jesus. And he wants us to see that Jesus is the eternal creator of all things. 
You know, Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 both have this in common. They don't let you duck before they hit you right between the eyes. You know what I mean? They just come on, and it's not like, well, should we talk about whether God exists or not? Let's have a discussion. It's not that at all. In the beginning, boom, God. Any questions? In the beginning, the Word. You know, any questions? It's that kind of a thing where it just clobbers you with um, the reality of this. And it's not up for debate. It's not up for grabs. And John means there never was a time when the Word did not exist. Now, whenever Scripture, of course, makes such a bold declaration about the person of Jesus Christ and his deity you can be absolutely sure the enemy is going to attack it. And virtually all heresies down through the centuries to our present day either attack the full deity of Jesus or earlier on there were some that attacked his true humanity. Um, In this day and age, the only one that I know that might do that is Christian science. Um, But most of them attack his deity. And there was a heretic in about the 4th century named Arius. And he has some modern disciples, and they are called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Arius taught, and the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that Jesus is not eternal God, but rather he is the first created being. So he's higher than all others, he is greater than all others, but he is not equal to God the Father. He is not eternal God. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses based this in part on Paul's statement in Colossians 1.15, where Paul says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And they say, ah, firstborn, see, he, he was born, he came into being. And of course, they're totally mutilating what that phrase means, But if they would just go ahead and read verse 16, the very next verse, Paul explains what he means by the firstborn. Notice the first word of verse 16. For, I'm going to explain to you what I mean. He's the firstborn. By him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He means if Jesus let go, the universe would disintegrate. Now, if all things have been created through him, uh, then clearly he is not included in that. He is not a created being. He is eternal. Also, Firstborn, by the way, in the Hebrew mind, meant the heir, because the firstborn son got the entire inheritance. And it's not so today. We divvy it up equally, usually, among all children. But then the firstborn got it all. But Paul's point and John's point is Jesus is eternal. Now, in our text, John is emphasizing the same thing in verse 3. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, that last phrase kind of cinches it, doesn't it? If Jesus has come into being, then verse 3 is false. 
because it says nothing has come into being apart from him, nothing that has come into being. And so if all things have been created through him, if Jesus um, caused everything that has come into being to come into being, then he did not come into being. And John is clearly affirming Jesus is eternal God. The second point that John is making here in the first two verses is that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And you say, wow, where's that there? Well, it's in the word with. John continues, the word was with God. Leon Morris um, explains that preposition with. He says, the whole existence of the word was oriented towards the Father. Probably, he says, we should understand from the preposition the two ideas of accompaniment and relationship. Not only did the Word exist in the beginning, but he existed in the closest possible connection with the Father. Now, this shows that the Word is not an impersonal philosophic idea that John's talking about. He is a person, and this person is distinguishable from God, and yet, as the first phrase shows and the third phrase shows, he is eternal God. Now, in verse 2, John repeats basically the first two phrases of verse 1, and he's doing that both for emphasis and to make sure you didn't miss it, you know, for clarity, to say, make sure you understand what I'm saying. Uh, The word, he says, was in the beginning with God. And while the word is God, the word then is distinct from God. Now, what I'm getting at is, of course, a mystery that we cannot comprehend, the mystery of the Trinity. I remember one time some Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on my door, and um, I asked the older woman who was coaching the younger woman, what her spiritual background was, and she said, I was a Lutheran. And I said, why did you become a Jehovah's Witness? And she said, I couldn't understand the Trinity. And I said, well, no one understands the Trinity, but that's not a reason to abandon it if God's Word teaches it. And God's Word clearly teaches that God is one God, and yet He exists in three distinct eternal persons, each of whom is fully God, And yet he is not three gods, he is one God. And if you um, want to read more on that, I don't know if it's still out there. I have a little book by Bruce Ware called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's about as simple as it gets. Or read uh, Wayne Grudem and his Systematic Theology, the section on the Trinity. Uh, The third point that John makes here is simply that Jesus then is God. The third phrase, the word was God. God. Again, Leon Morris says, nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the Word. This statement should not be watered down. And then he clarifies, John is not merely saying that there's something divine about Jesus. He is affirming that he is God and doing so emphatically as we see from the word order in the Greek. Now, again, if you've had an encounter with the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, you know that they claim that the Greek text and their New World Translation says, the word was a God, small g, 
because there is no article before God in the Greek text, no definite article. Well, how should you answer their claim? I think, first of all, you can, if you can remember this, tell them this is the only way in Greek to say the word was God. Because if John had put the definite article before God, he would have denied the reality of the Father as God and the Spirit as God. He would have been saying the word is totally God and no other is. In other words, he would have equated Jesus as God and it would have been another heresy that doesn't allow for the Father and the Spirit to be God. Um, and now, a second thing I think you could and should say, and I would even say this, even though I've studied Greek for years and I read my Greek New Testament, I did this morning, and uh, yet I think you can say this, neither of us understands the technicalities of Greek grammar well enough to have an intelligent discussion about that subject. Uh, in other words... Don't go into all the technicalities of Greek with them, but you can say this. Knowledgeable Greek scholars consistently point out the inconsistency of the New World Translation. And you can pick up any literal modern translation of the Greek New Testament into English, and it translates it exactly as you have it in your translation here this morning without any variance. Um, I read extensively in Daniel Wallace's Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics this week where he talks about this, and he argues that the Greek construction, the way John phrased it here, brings out the qualitative aspect of the word as God, which means this, that the word had all of the attributes, he had all of the qualities and the essence of the Father, even though they differ in person, as the word with God implies. And here's Wallace's statement, and he put this in italics and bold type uh, himself. He said, The construction the evangelist chose to express this idea was the most concise way he could have stated that the word was God and yet distinct from the Father. Well, if you forget about that point in your discussion with a Jehovah's Witness, and maybe you'll choose to, but the third point you can bring up, and that is very simple, there are many other scriptures that affirm that Jesus is God, even here in John's Gospel. For example, in John chapter 5, the Jews uh, decide they want to kill Jesus, they say, because he's blaspheming by making himself equal with God. Now, if you walked up to me and said, you were making yourself equal with God, first, I would be horrified. And secondly, I'd say, please, please, you totally misunderstood me. I had no idea that's what, how I came across. I did not mean that at all. You know what Jesus does? He goes on for verse after verse after verse saying, exactly, let me tell you who I am. And in verses 22 and 23, for example, he says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You could not make a statement of deity much stronger than that. If I said, you should honor me just as much as you honor God the Father, uh, stand back. I should get struck with lightning at that moment. But Jesus says it very boldly. And if you read the entire section there, 
he, that's not the only thing he says. He goes on and on with those kinds of claims. Um, also, as I pointed out last week, the climax of John's gospel comes in chapter 20 and verse 28, where Thomas, when he finally sees the risen Savior there in the upper room, he falls down and says, my Lord and my God. And that's John's point. Jesus should be your Lord and your God. Now, you know how the Jehovah's Witnesses answer that verse? They say that he was making an exclamation. You know how people today, uh, excuse me, but they say, oh my God. Well, that's swearing. Do not say that, dear friends. Do not use that as an expression, because that's to take the holy name of the Lord God in vain. Can you imagine if Thomas was swearing that Jesus would have said, nice going, Thomas. But that's essentially, in modern English, what he says. He affirms what Thomas has proclaimed and says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so Jesus always welcomes the worship that is given to him. Read through the Gospels and you'll see it. Uh, And then... Years later, the same Apostle John is there on the Isle of Patmos as an old man. And he has that revelation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, he sees Jesus in his glory. And he falls before him as a dead man. And here's how Jesus responds in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. He says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, if you know your Old Testament, immediately, if you had been a Jew, you would have said, What? You are who? The first and the last, because you come to Isaiah 44, 6, and it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. So in light of Isaiah, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord God. I am eternal God, the Lord of hosts. Uh, C.K. Barrett comments on John 1.1. He says, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this is not true, the book is blasphemous. And so in verse 1, John affirms that Jesus is eternal. He affirms that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He affirms that Jesus is God, but also he affirms, of course, that Jesus is the Word. Now, you don't necessarily make the connection that Jesus is the Word till you get to verse 14, uh, where he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his, or saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does John mean by the Word? Well, many, many pages and books have been written trying to link John with early Greek philosophy and The Greeks, as you may know, had a concept of the logos. That's the Greek for the word. Uh, And they thought the logos was the rational mind that ruled the universe. It wasn't necessarily a 
personal God, but here's the problem when you get into these kind of discussions. We really cannot know what John was linking to Greek philosophy because he doesn't explain himself. I think maybe John, being aware of Greek ideas, uh, used this term to say, let me show you truly who the real word is. So for that, for the Greek audience. But I think that since the links with, with the Old Testament are so clear here in this opening prologue, um, clearly John is drawing on the word out of the Old Testament. We've already seen Genesis 1, uh, the in the beginning thing. And as you know, in Genesis 1, the repeated phrase is, and God said, and God said, and God said. And on each day, God spoke and the world, the universe, was created. Uh, then in Psalm 33, 6, the psalmist says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And then in verse 9, same psalm, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Uh, psalm 107, verse 20 declares, He sent his word and healed them. And God's word accomplishes the purpose for which he sends it forth. It says in Isaiah 55, 11. So there is a creative power in God's word. And Jesus, John is saying, is that word of God. And so he means when he calls Jesus the word, listen up. God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. And uh, he is the eternal creator of all things. Just two things to comment further on the word. First of all, then, I've already mentioned this briefly, but as the word, Jesus reveals to us what the invisible God is like. As I said, you can't know what I'm thinking unless I verbalize it. Sometimes wives think we husbands should, and we've all been there, haven't we, husbands? You know, well, huh? Huh? And uh, she shifted tracks and is off somewhere else, and she didn't verbalize it. And I, I have no clue what she's thinking until she says, Oh, no, no, I meant, and she explains it. And then I go, Oh, okay, I think I now get it. But um, in John 1.18, John says, No one has seen God at any time, similar to what Paul says. He's the invisible God. No one can see him. But the only begotten God, some manuscripts read Son, and I'll comment on that when we get to John 1.18, but I think it's the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Or as you know, when we get to chapter 14, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you haven't come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus reveals God to us, and that means it is only through Jesus that anyone can come to know God personally. You must come through Jesus. The second thing to note here is that as the word then, Jesus shows us our responsibility toward God. Uh, Hebrews opens that book similarly to John 1.1 here. Um, <clears throat> Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this, God, 
After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now the point is, if none other than God is speaking to us through Jesus, his word, then we had better listen and we had better respond obediently to him. John 3.36 draws the line very clearly. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's one camp. But he who does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's the other horrific place you could be. And so it is a serious mistake to ignore what God has said to us in Jesus Christ. You ignore him to your own peril. So in verses 1 and 2 then, John is saying Jesus is the eternal word. He is distinct from the Father, and yet he is equally God with the Father, and that the Father then has spoken to us in the word, in Jesus, the Son of God. The second point John makes is that Jesus is the creator of all that exists. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, I've already pointed out, if nothing has come into being that has come into being apart from Jesus, then clearly Jesus did not come into being. Jesus is eternal. Um, And so that point is clear. But the Bible teaches that all three members of the Trinity were engaged in creation. Um, God the Father created everything, but he did it through Jesus Christ. And then in Genesis, we read that the Spirit of God was involved. The Spirit was hovering or um, brooding over the water there in Genesis 1-2. Also in Genesis 1-26, God says, let us Make man in our image. And that certainly uh, makes room for the doctrine of the Trinity that God was conferring among himself as to creating human beings in his image and likeness. Now, as it is with the person of Christ, it is not coincidental that in the doctrine of creation the enemy works overtime. He works overtime to destroy the deity of Christ He works overtime to destroy the doctrine that God created everything by the power of his word. And uh, there's a movement today, sadly, among so-called evangelicals um, to promote theistic evolution. Even one of my revered seminary professors has joined that camp. It's called the biologos thing, and uh, John MacArthur has an excellent uh, interview on the biologos disaster, as he calls it. But if God created everything out of nothing, then matter is not eternal, as atheists claim. God is eternal. God as spirit is eternal. Matter came into being when God said, let there be, and there was. And so, here's why that doctrine is important, as I implied earlier. If in the beginning, God 
created, and he did it through Jesus, the eternal word, then he is God and I am not God. And guess what? That means I better be on my face before him. And that's why atheists and agnostics hate the doctrine of creation. Because if they can do away with God, then guess who gets to be God? I do. I can call my own shots. I can live my own life. But if God created, then I am a creature. And he is the almighty creator. And the only position before the almighty is, as I said, in submission to him as Lord of all. And that is a fundamental lesson in all life. That's why the Bible begins that way, right out of the starting gate. That's why John begins that way, right out of John 1.1. To say, let's establish who's the boss, shall we? It's not you. (laughs) God is God. You are not God. Any questions? That's how he begins. Jesus is creator. And then thirdly, he shows that Jesus is the author of life. And that should point all people toward him. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John likes that word life. He uses it 36 times, uh, far more than any other New Testament book. Now, what does he mean in verse 4, in him was life? Well, D.A. Carson, whom I highly respect, argues that in light of verses 1 through 3, the life here, here's a quote from him. He says, the life in hearing in the word is related not to salvation, but to creation. And then that next phrase, the life was the light of men, would either point to the fact that God created man in his image so that we should be able to see in man something of God, or it would refer to what Paul refers to there in Romans 1.20, where he says that uh, God's image, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature are revealed in the creation. So that may be what John is pointing to, but I'm going to go a little farther than Dr. Carson there and say that because John goes on to develop so thoroughly the truth that Jesus brought eternal life to those who are dead in their sins, uh, that and he brought light, spiritual light, to those who are in darkness, I argue that verse 4 and verse 5 also point to the spiritual life, the spiritual light that Jesus came to bring in salvation. And so the application to us is this with the life lesson of verse 4. Those who are dead need one thing, don't they? They need life. Man cannot resurrect himself. Only God can resurrect the dead. And that's precisely what happens in Jesus And then, the minute we have the life of God in us, the light goes on. We understand, for the first time, spiritual truth. Paul mentions the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and he's referring here to those who are perishing. He says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then, jumping down to verse 6, he adds, For God, this goes back to creation, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
And so he's comparing salvation to creation, just as John is doing. When God created, he said, let there be light. There was light. He said, let us make man in our image. And there was life in the dust that God brought together in the molecules as the first man. Same thing spiritually. Salvation is a matter of God raising the dead, giving life to the dead, and then opening the eyes to say, let there be light. And suddenly the word of God becomes a new book to you where you see the truth and you revel in it. And uh, that's the life and the light that Jesus brings. And then finally, John shows that Jesus is the only source of true light in this spiritually dark world. Verse 5, he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, there's a problem there in translation. Uh, Some of you have the ESV, the light did not overcome it. I mean, the darkness did not overcome it. Uh, The word translated comprehend can have two meanings. It's kind of like our word grasp. To grasp something, I might mean I get it mentally. Yeah, I grasp. I never did, but I grasp calculus, okay? Um, I understand it. I get it, you see. That's one use. The other word is I take hold of something and thereby I control it. I, I grasp the ball, and now I, it's in my possession, it's in my power. I can throw it, set it down, do what I want with it. Um, and so here, if it's referring to the creation, then I think John's meaning is, when God said, let there be light, the light overcame the darkness. Uh, you go into a pitch black room, you flip on the light, the darkness loses. Suddenly, light is everywhere. You see, or you've been in a cave where they turn out the lights and then they light a little flashlight or a candle. Suddenly, the darkness is dispelled by that light. Um, John uses the word in the present tense here. The light shines, not shone, in the darkness. And so I'm going to relate this not to the original creation as so much as He's talking about Jesus' presence here in this earth. And when Jesus came, the powers of darkness could not overcome him. They put him on the cross, and they thought they had victory, but he arose and lives forevermore. So in that sense, the light could not overcome, the darkness could not overcome Jesus, the light. Uh, The word also can mean comprehend, and uh, that meaning fits in with... um, Verse 10, it says that the world did not know him. In verse 11, his own did not receive him. You get down to chapter 3, and Jesus says that um, uh, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so men didn't get who Jesus was. They didn't grasp it mentally. In fact, when you get to John chapter 8, verse 48, they actually accuse Jesus of having a demon. I mean, how far off base can you get? But they didn't get it because they could not comprehend who Jesus is. Now, knowing John, maybe he deliberately used an ambiguous word with double meaning because he loves symbolism, as we saw last week. And uh, both are true, so I don't know which one would be the uh, true meaning of the verse, but both are true, that the darkness does not overcome the light. 
because Jesus conquered in his resurrection. Uh, and at the same time, the darkness did not comprehend the light either. But John's point in this opening, stunning picture of Jesus is to say he is the eternal word. He is the creator of all that is. It is in Jesus that you see or he reveals the life of God to those who are dead. He reveals the light of God to those who are in darkness. And so the question is, have you ever had that encounter with Jesus? Like that soldier in Ben-Hur who looked in Jesus' face and suddenly was just transfixed in awe. Have you, through the word of God, the written word of God, come to know the living word of God, Jesus, in such a way that you just go, whoa, I never realized who he really is. That is a life-transforming experience. And because he is the eternal God, then of course we should believe in him. And as I said, that means we should submit every aspect of our lives to him. Because Jesus is the creator, certainly we should submit to him also, but we should worship him in the handiwork of what he has made. And it's one reason I enjoy the outdoors so much, is just enjoying God in his creation and seeing his, his handiwork. Uh, if God's life in, is in us, what it means is then our salvation is secure. Because God gave us life and he's promised he wouldn't take it away. And so we should have comfort in him and we should be filled with hope because we're going to spend eternity with him. And then if Jesus is our light, then it means that we should allow that light to shine into every nook and cranny of our lives and there shouldn't be a decision that we make without going to the light of his word for guidance and uh, submit everything to him. So John's point is simply this, to know God, look to, believe in, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow before him. Father, thank you for this stunning portrait of the eternal word, the Lord Jesus, that you sent graciously to rescue us from our sins. I would ask, Lord, if there are any here who have never put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, they would read this afternoon the entire Gospel of John, and by the time they get to the end, that you would uh, impart saving faith to their hearts that they might believe on you, believe in Jesus as the only Savior and Lord, and be delivered from their sin and from judgment. Father, I pray that as your children, if any of us have lost sight of the glory of Jesus, that you would open our eyes again to see him for who he is in all of his splendor, and that we would yield every aspect of our lives to him, all our sin that we would let go of quickly and turn from, that we would appropriate all that he is to us as we are in him. And we give you thanks for such a great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.